Well, we're going to break a little bread this morning, have a little meal in the Word. And um, just to kind of formalize this, let's just uh, take a moment and let's pray and get out of these conversations, all this good fellowship going on. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the house of the Lord. Just gathering together in your name, in your presence. We are blessed and... Lord, we just don't want to take it for granted, this ability to gather together like this and just, um, like John was saying, where the Spirit comes together in, in this own unique way where, where hearts are lifted to you, where voices have been lifted up to you, where you've been lifted up. And now, God, we just ask for a, a divine touch from you as we open up the Word. As we read uh, various verses from your Word, uh, may it become life. <clears throat> may it become bread for us. Become living water for us, Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, so this morning, um, <clears throat> bear with me just a little bit of sinus drainage, so if I clear my throat from time to time, bear with me on that one. Um, it's a story about a nice Jewish family, and I'm going to just for the first little bit this morning just tell you a story, okay? And then I'm going to preach a little bit after I tell you this little story. And that's where you want your spit towels up here so when I get to preach. But this is a story about a nice Jewish family maybe uh, like some 3,500 years ago, 3,300 years ago over in the town of Bethlehem. Now, I'm going to mention a name uh, from the Old Testament, the name Elimelech. And as I just mentioned the name Elimelech, I'm just kind of curious, just out of curiosity's sake, how many people know immediately who I'm talking about? A show of hands. Elimelech. Uh, okay, so we've got some education to go on this morning. Okay, he had a wife named Naomi. More hands? Okay, so this is about the book of Ruth. I'm going to just tell the story about the book of Ruth. But it starts out with a man and his, um, and his small family, uh, Malon and Killian, wife Naomi, sons Malon and Killian. And uh, now, yeah, this Elimelech is not, uh, you know that song, uh, not that Elimelech. <clears throat> Thank you for laughing. I wasn't sure how that was going to go over. I was thinking if I do that, are they just going to all look at me like weird? But you didn't, so you're my kind of people. Thank you for that. Um, so in this culture, I'm going to just take a few minutes and I'm going to put it into the historical setting, right? Because 3,500 years ago, life was just a whole lot different than it was for us today. This was back at a time when men were men <laughs> and women were women. What I'm saying careful now. Don't rush the stage, ladies. I'm just telling you the story, all right? It's not my story. It's from the Bible. 
And I will be taking some literary license this morning, by the way, as I tell the story. I'm not going to change doctrine on you. I'm not going to give you bad theology. I'm just saying there's a lot of narrative in this story that's missing that I might add lib a little bit. Just go with it. So they were a part of Elimelech and his wife Naomi and two sons would have been a part of this bigger clan because in the Hebrew culture of that time, right, you were always a part of this big family. In fact, in the Hebrew, when they're talking about family, they're always talking about two or three generations, you know, 20 or more people in one family. And that was for the cause that that was the, the security net Okay, the, the social security, you might say, of that day. They didn't have safety nets in the government at that time like they do now. And so the family or the larger clan where you had the patriarch, grandpa, right, and his sons and their sons, and maybe grandpa had two or three wives, and his sons, his 10 or 20 sons had two or three wives. And quickly, all of a sudden, there's this whole kind of clan, this commune, in which they would all kind of stick together. And as the sons grew up and got strong, they'd get out in the field, they'd be working, and so you built off of that. And of course, women then, who had no rights to land ownership, they were completely dependent upon having a husband and having male children to keep them in a safety net. Because otherwise, if you did not have that, if the women of, of that day did not have that in place, then your, your pickings were really slim. You were very vulnerable to a culture. And at the time of this story, it was the time of the judges. Okay, there's a 400-year period between uh, uh, Joshua and King Saul in which, you know, there were these charismatic leaders who were warriors, who were the leaders and appointed leaders by God for a period of time. But life, morally in many ways, was kind of in decay in the Palestinian land at that time. And so, really, the best you could kind of hope for was to be in a good clan, be in a good family where, you know, where you had a good patriarch, where you had good men who took care of the ones around them. And also, just a nuance to this, God knew, and you know, God knows, okay, so sometimes husbands are going to die. A woman isn't going to bear a son. And so God came up with this provision in which if, um, you know, if, if a man, you know, married a woman and then he died, well, it was set up so that that husband's next, his brother, next in line, would end up marrying, you know, his sister-in-law. It's like, you imagine what was going on like when your brother was picking a wife, right? Back in that day. Like, hey, if you die, I got to have her? <laughs> really? No, let me in on this decision, dude. <laughs> right? No, I don't ad-libbing here. I don't know exactly how it went, but I'm just thinking it had to be kind of like, well, it was norm, and maybe wasn't even thought of, but it was, that brother would be the kinsman, right, the brother, who would redeem this wife, so he would marry uh, this lady, so he would marry his dead brother's wife, 
so that she could have male children and keep that family lineage and heritage and name going on. And so this was the culture. This was um, the setting in which we find this story here in the town of Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem is known as, as the house of bread, which is kind of ironic because at the time of this story, there's a famine going on. And so Elimelech, Naomi, Malon, Killian, they ran into such hard times that they had to splinter off of the family clan and they went about 50, 60 miles to the west to Moab, a land called Moab. And uh, they went there in search of work. And they would have lost that land for that time. I mean, he could come back later to redeem that land, Elimelech could, but, you know, he had fallen upon tough times, had to get rid of the land and just move to go find some work elsewhere. Now, here's the thing about this decision. In the Jewish culture, moving over to Moab had to be a little bit of this, like, really? Oh, come on. Elimelech to Moab? You know who the Moabites are? I mean, you remember Abraham and Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and his wife and daughters escaping out of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And then there's all of a sudden the salt lick over there by Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's just Lot and his two daughters. And they think the end of the world has come. They're up in a cave in a mountain somewhere and they think life is over for everybody, right? Fire and brimstone, we're the only people left in this world. And the daughters look at each other and go, how do we have kids? Uh, Daddy? Yeah, it gets a little squirrely, doesn't it? I mean, the Bible is not necessarily really, um, you know, there's just some very real moments in it, you might say. So the daughters get dad drunk, right? And Moab is birthed out of this incestuous relationship. And to the Jews, who were Abraham's, followers of Abraham, right? Like, those are our weird cousins from long ago. Stay away from them. And the Moabite, and then there's this significant history. If you go read the history between Israel and Moab, I mean, there, you know, the Moabite women coming into Israel and seducing Mennonite. Mennonite. <laughs> seducing Israelite men. <laughs> That's, I didn't even script that one out. <laughs> seducing Israelite men, which, I don't know, that didn't seem to be, you know, it's like God kind of had understanding for that. But then they brought idolatry into the Israeli camp because the men be like, oh, you want that idol? Sure, you know, get you off my back. Will you stop? Will you stop nagging me if you let that idol in the house? You know, and that brought on that brought on a curse from the Lord. There was twenty four thousand Israelite people who died from that situation, and I mean, there's stories galore about you know. So between even though there wasn't much space between you know Palestine and and Moab. 
there was just kind of like, you know, stay away. You know, it's, the Moabites and, and the Israeli people just never had a, a cozy history at all, and they're just kind of estranged from each other. But that's where Elimelech and Naomi, Malon, Killian went. And so that's the setting. That's the context of this story. So they went over there, and Elimelech dies. Okay, we don't know what happened. And meantime, they have integrated into the Moabite culture at some level, and Malon and Killian marry some Moabite women, and they seem to be kind of getting along, and things going along, and then all of a sudden, again, no narrative, don't know what happened, but both Kilian, Malon, within the next like 10 years or so, without bearing any children, you know, from their Moabite uh, women, uh, wives, um, who happen to be named Ruth and Orpah, okay, so no children, they die, and all of a sudden, you got the characters of the story, it's Naomi, it's Orpah, who, you all know that Oprah Winfrey of Oprah Winfrey fame? She was supposed to be called Orpah, but they misspelled her name. <laughs> and so she's Oprah rather than Orpah. Welcome, Orpah! It just doesn't have the same ring as Oprah, does it? But anyhow, <clears throat> that's another side note. Really don't need to be going down that path. <laughs> so, so all of a sudden, it, it's, it's those three ladies. And of course, Naomi's beside herself. She's just like, now what? I've, God has taken everything away from me. And she gets into this embitteredness. And it's like, you know, this whole thing of, you know, hey, call me Mara. Don't call me Naomi anymore because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. And so Naomi's beside herself, and she's just like, I don't know what else to do other than maybe just go back to Israel, go back to Bethlehem, and throw myself back into, my, into Elimelech's clan and see if someone will have mercy on me. Because... God's taken away my husband, my kids. He's taken away my job. Okay, her job, her domesticate, her role to domesticate and, and be with the kids, build the family, work around, the, you know, keep things going. That had been taken from her. And she no longer had sons, no hope of grandchildren to take on, to take care of her. And so she's embittered and and so she starts heading out and Orpah and Ruth start following along and they're, they're going back together. And she stops and says, wait, you two, no, don't go with me because I've got nothing to offer you. You can go back into Israel and you're Moabite women. We know what is, Israeli men think about Moabite women. No, just stay here. You're better off going back to your family, having children with them because, you know, hey... Am I going to have any more kids? And can you wait until they grow up? No. Go back home. And I think, you know, she gave enough of a little bit of a speech where Orpah's like, peace out. <laughs> Get you. I, I hear you. I'm going to go back. 
And of course, we know that Ruth, and I'm going to preach on this just a little bit, but Ruth goes, no, where you go, I go. Right? Where you stay, I stay. Your God's going to be my God. Your people are going to be my people. And so Naomi doesn't talk Ruth out of it. Ruth joins Naomi. And it's obvious that the two daughters-in-law had an affectionate relationship with Ruth, that there was a warm, kind of good, good rapport there. But so Naomi and Ruth then trudge on all the way back to Bethlehem. And at the end of chapter 1 in, in the book of Ruth, we come up with this. They come into town, and it creates a little bit of a stir, like, Naomi, wow, ten, you know, is this Naomi? And she's got a Moabite lady with her, and so it created just a little bit of a stir. And that's how chapter 1 of Ruth ends up. And we go into chapter 2. Well, we're back in Bethlehem now. We're back in the house of bread. The famine is over, and there's work to be done. And so, what do you do? Well, they need to make a living. They need to get some food. Well, and as in that culture, many of you probably know this, that, you know, God had a, a little bit of a welfare system, you might say. They didn't have the welfare office. But if you were a landowner and you owned land and you had wheat fields and when it came time for harvest, which this was the time for harvest, um, if, you know, they had these big scythes and they, you know, go through the wheat and the workers of the field would do this, you got one, you got one swing of the wheat. And of course, if you got it all, you got it all. But let's say it got, you know, your scythe got a little dull. And some of the heads of wheat were, when you went through, didn't get cut off. You were commanded, leave them there. Don't, you don't get a second chance to knock them down. Leave them there for the people, for the poor people in that land to come along and glean that. And also, like in the corners of the fields, the edges of the field. Kind of, you know, you come up to a corner of the field, you do this. Well, there's this whole swath of, you know, grain over here. Leave that alone. So Naomi sends Ruth out. Ruth being the younger of the two, I don't know. I, you know, was Naomi, Naomi didn't join her. It's just Ruth. She goes, hey, Elimelech had a brother that I remember. He was a pretty good guy from what I remember. And not only that, I'm hearing he's successful. So go to his field and check it out and see if you can't get some grain for us today. So Ruth goes to the field, and she's gleaning up all this extra leftover grain. And according to chapter 2, she's a good worker. Um, because Boaz comes up, and he comes checking out, you know, his domain. Like, you know, I imagine walking up the edge of the field, and goes over to one of his foremen, and he's checking things out, and he's like, oh, hey, there's broad over there. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, oh, that's the one I heard about here. Oh, so that's Ruth. Oh, she's the Moabite one? Oh, really? Oh, they raised some pretty decent-looking women over there, I think. Uh, but, oh, and she stuck with Naomi. Oh, yeah. I hear, I've been hearing some good about her. And so he, and oh, she's a good worker? She's not lazy. She's not just flirting with you guys. 
Oh, she only came in for a drink once this morning? All morning? Really? Wow. I don't know. Hey, bring her over to me. And so he brings her over, and they start talking a little bit, and next thing you know, they're having a little bit of a dinner date. I mean, they've got, um, I think, wine vinegar is mentioned in there with bread. Dip your bread into wine vinegar. Whatever. Um, and roasted grain. Oh, we're pulling out the stops. <laughs> so anyhow, they have this meal together. And then Boaz says to Ruth, he says, Hey, I tell you what, I got a bunch of fields. There's going to be a bunch more work for my men. He goes, I want you to follow my crew. I'll tell you why. Because, you know, it's, it's not safe in other fields. Some of these other family members, they got some men working for them. Some bad things could happen to you, Ruth. You stay with my men. I'm going to make sure that you're safe. And so immediately, protector steps in, right? And then she goes back to the field, and she was working. Then he goes to his foremans and says, Hey, you guys, for, for Ruth... She's looking out not just for herself, but for Naomi. And Naomi's on rough times. Feel, you know, make sure that you leave a little extra more for her. And by the end of chapter 2, guess what? You know, while all the other ladies of the, you know, maybe, again, ad-libbing here a little bit, literary license, while they're going home with their little basket of grain at the end of the day, Ruth's going home with a basket, I mean a big basket of grain that day. And she gets home and Naomi's like, Whoa! Where have you found this favor? And so Ruth tells her about that. And so chapter 2 then ends up with, for that, the rest of that threshing season, uh, Ruth is going along, tagging along in Boaz's fields. And we don't hear any more about you know, any interaction between her and Boaz for the rest of that harvesting season. We don't know, was that weeks, was it months, was it days? We don't know. And um, all we know is, is that it appears that all of the provision needs, the food needs for that winter, for that year, were met by Ruth and Naomi, you know, Ruth gaining, have all that favor in Boaz's field. So, chapter 3, moving on with the story. Chapter 3 comes along, and um, Naomi now, she's saying, you know, Ruth is having all this favor with Boaz, but Boaz isn't, he's not reaching out to her. And you know how it is with ladies, you know, how men are like dense at times. Where men just need a little bit of a, you know, kick in the hind end a little bit. Like, they get it, but they don't get it. Like something's obvious, but they're not acting out, and they're not responding to it properly. So you need to kind of, you know, move them along a little bit. Well, that's the feel you get here. There's a little bit of Naomi going, wait a minute. There's something here between these two. And I can see a wonderful future. But apparently Boaz can't see this wonderful future. And I'm not sure if Ruth gets it either, because she's still really, you know, learning about us as a family and our customs and our culture. So she starts scheming a little bit and she says, Hey Ruth, 
tell you what, go gussy yourself up a little bit, girl. You stink. <laughs> go take a shower, spend the next two hours in front of a mirror, get yourself looking real nice. And by the way, I went down to, I, I went down to Walton, no, not Walmart. I went down, I went down to this really cool woman's clothing store and I got you some clothes. I don't even know where you women shop. But anyhow, so, and you're going to be looking real nice. We're going to get you all gussied up, smelling good, attractive, because I got something for you to do. And it's like, what would that be? And it's like, well, you know Boaz. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Boaz. Wow, found favor with Boaz. Well, he is... He and his men are thrashing this wheat over this part. And they work real hard all day, thrashing the wheat, getting the grain piles going. And then at the end of the day, they always have this big feast and they kind of celebrate and have this little party, maybe drink a little bit, and then they go to bed. What I want you to do is get all gussied up and then go over there when it's getting dusk, when people won't see you, right? And you stand on the outside, kind of make sure no one sees you, and you just kind of watch them. And then when Boaz lays down to go to sleep for the night, you watch where he goes. And then after all those men are sawing logs, snoring away, you sneak over to where he is, and you lay down beside him at his feet and you uncover that little kind of dress gown, whatever robe that he has, you uncover his feet with that. And she's probably thinking, what the world? Well, that was a type of Ruth taking initiative to propose marriage. This is not a little sexual liaison thing going on. This is about... Look, you're a kinsman, and you have the ability to... I have the ability to become your wife. Will you do it? Will you accept me? It's a little risky. It really is, because, yes, she's found favor, but we have no indication that what Boaz is thinking. I mean, Boaz could say, you are a Moabite woman. I don't want to... I don't want to get a Moabite woman in my family. No, I want to. I'm Jewish, man. I'm going to stick to that. I'm going with that. And, you know, she just says, Whatever you say, Naomi, I'll do. And so Ruth goes, she stands on the outskirts. There's this, they're eating, they're drinking, having some fine wines. And then all the men then over go to somewhere along the edge of this threshing area. And they go to sleep for the night. And Ruth sneaks in there. And she uncovers the robe that's under his feet. And it's kind of like all of a sudden in the middle of the night at some point. Is it her perfume? Is it his cold feet? What is it? The presence of a woman by my, you know. And I'm like, whoa, he wakes up. Like, what's going on? And she goes, well, you take your garment and cover me. Will you, in other words, she's saying, will you take your, will you cover me? Will you become a kinsman redeemer for me? And uh, it's like, well, 
I'm not next in line. There's another one, but yeah, I'm interested. I'm interested. And he goes, now, you can stay here tonight. Now, again, there is no hint of sexual impropriety or a, a losing of, of any character devaluation at all in this situation. And he goes, but in the morning, leave before all the other guys wake up because we don't want to sully our reputation here, right? And I'm just thinking, you know, like, what was the rest of that night like? I'm <laughs> like, okay, I'm just laying here beside this guy, and uh, he's kind of interested in marrying me, but, I, you know, I, did she sleep? Did he sleep? I don't know. <laughs> that must have been an interesting night. Anyhow, then, around dawn, she gets up to go, and he goes, oh, by the way, uh, here, here's more grain for you. <laughs> you know, gives her more provision and sends her back. And she goes back, and Naomi's like, what happened, what happened, what happened? You know, did you, what's, and, and she goes, well, you know, he, he covered me with his cloak. And Naomi goes, okay, he'll take care of it from here on. Because she also was aware that there was another kinsman redeemer closer in line. And it's like, well, what's he like? Is he going to be a jerk? He has first dibs to Ruth. And he might be a real jerk. And who wants to get into that, right? So, a few hours later, next day, uh, I mean, in that morning, Boaz goes to the town gate where all of the, the town elders are and where official transactions occur. And he's sitting there and he's waiting. And all of a sudden, the next brother in line to Elimelech, whoever the name isn't given, uh, comes up and Boaz says, Hey, you're next in line for, to redeem Naomi's land back from, uh, from Elimelech that Elimelech Malon Killian had. He said, would you like to do it? And the guy goes, well, shoot. Yeah, why not? I mean, Naomi's washed up. I'm, I can let her be grandma to my 30 kids. I hear she makes a mean egg omelet. And you know what? In a couple years, she's going to croak anyway. And then all her land, all that land that, you know, Limelech and Malon Killian had is going to be mine. Sure, I'll redeem it. No problem. And then Boaz goes, oh, and by the way, uh, did I fail to mention that Naomi has Ruth, the Moabite daughter-in-law, who you will be obligated to take as your wife, and make sure she produces a male child so the land stays in her name and is her safety net. For, uh, me, a Moabite woman with the ladies I already got? No, thank you. And he opts out. And immediately Boaz takes his sandal off, because that's what you did back then, in front of witnesses. You take your sandal off, you give it to the person, say, deal. And then um, Boaz, then in front of all of the people there, says, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead from, with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you are my witnesses. And then, you know, if you've ever seen a musical, right? You get this 
vision of this old time village where the village elders all go, hey, we celebrate this transaction and may your name live in posterity and may you be blessed forever and ever. Hallelujah. Amen. And so Boaz and Ruth get married and they live happily ever after, right? So that's the story. This is a story that's found between Judges and 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. It's kind of like this little love story, kind of this sweet little story that almost seems out of place in the context of the time of Judges and the setting that it was in. But it's there. <clears throat> what I want to do this morning, and, and now shifting from that story, is to say... This story is a word picture of a kind of relationship that God wants to have with us. At some level, we need to see ourselves as Naomi, right? Where we've lost everything at some level. Where, where we're helpless and we don't have any right to be able to pick ourselves up by our bootstrap anymore and figure it out. We're helpless, we're dependent, and we need provision and we need protection or life is just going to go completely haywire. Where there's kind of that hopelessness and despair at some level, we're to see ourselves in, in Naomi's position. And maybe it's in this, in this position of where life has just hit us so hard upside the head and we've lost something at another level we need to see ourselves as Ruth a sinner a lost sinner someone who God shouldn't even be interested in because we're so steeped in this sin nature of ours that we really don't deserve any favor at all from a loving God and so at some level we see ourselves in Naomi. We see ourselves in Ruth's position. And then, of course, there's Boaz. And there we see a type of Christ at some level. We see a little bit of, of Christ, the, the authority and the ability to redeem something that has been lost, to redeem something that's been sinful, to redeem something and restore something, someone back into a godly, healthy relationship. So that's what we see playing out here, that God is more than just a list of rules. God is more than just a set of instructions. God is about a relationship-building God. And the first point that we see that God wants from us in this is going back to chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. We see that God is looking for a person of commitment. When Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you, Naomi, or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. What we need to understand here is that 
Ruth was saying to Naomi, she is saying, you know what, Naomi, I hear that you're saying that you don't have anything to offer me. I've seen a God that has allowed you to go through some pain that, to be honest, I'm not interested in going through. I hear you, Naomi, when you say that if I go back with you to Bethlehem, that I may never have a husband. I may never have children of my own. I may never have a safety net around me. I hear you, Naomi, that there's no guarantees about the life that I'm going to live if I follow you back to Bethlehem. He goes, but she's saying, here's one thing, Naomi, that you have. You have the true and living and authentic God, and I, all I want to do is be near him. I want to be near the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's only one thing that matters to me, Naomi, And that is to be near God. And by me going back with you to Bethlehem, I know I'm going to be near God, and that's all that I need. That is all that I want. I'm all in. I'm all in. And this morning, we are asked once again in in our gathering to say, are we all in? Or have we become distracted by the things of life? by the slaps upside of our head, by the punches in our gut, by the circumstances, by the pressures, by all these things that are going on in our life that have sidetracked us and we want to go, oh, God, why this? Why, why, why? And are we distracted or are we being brought back to where God is saying, draw near to me? Are you all in with me? Have we made up our minds and are we keeping steadfast in our minds to follow the Lord and be near to the Lord? The key principle of life is not life functioning and happening the way we want it to be. The key principle in life is drawing near to God. Second, piece to this is a a person who pursues. In chapter 3, verse 5, remember the interaction between Naomi and Ruth, where Ruth, uh, you know, Naomi's telling Ruth, here's what I need you to do to go and approach Boaz tonight in the threshing room floor. And I'm sure it just had to be a little bizarre at some level in terms of risk. It's a risk a risk of rejection, a risk of shame, a risk of being cast out. It's that risk that, you know, Naomi was scared might happen to her back when they were, uh, you know, over at Moab before she came over to Bethlehem. And, and what did Ruth say? I will do whatever you say. I'm willing, I'm willing to step out even though I'm going to maybe risk my reputation. I'm going to risk something that's near to me. I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to just go with this. All in is still there, and now I'm going to act it out. Here's where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. Number three, a person of integrity. Verse 10 of chapter 3. Boaz's response to Ruth when she did what she did, took that risk. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. 
I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. You remember initially there was that favor with Boaz, and they had that little dinner date, and then all of a sudden, you know, the rest of the threshing uh, harvest season goes by, and there's no more indication that there was Boaz was seeking her out, and it's kind of like reading into it a little bit, like, okay, what's going on? What's going on is, is that Boaz was stepping back and he was observing and he was watching and he was seeing what was going on in terms of Ruth. Would she, after a while, start... Well, you know, guys, come on. Let me tell you about what's going on. Well, because of this, I did this. I know it's not really what God wanted, but God understands, right? We can so easily start compromising our thought process because of what we're going through. And we have a, a reason, a purpose, and let's just call it what it is in many cases when we're talking about morality, right? An excuse. It's an excuse. It's wrong. Oh, we might understand it. Well, of course you're mad at them and bitter towards them because if they did that to you, then of course you should be. I, I get it. It makes sense, right? And we start watering down our integrity. And what we need to understand is, is that God is constantly looking at our lives and he's seeing the pressure we're under. He's seeing the tests we're under. He's seeing the battle we're under. And he's watching. He's saying, how are they? Are they going to let integrity rise up out of this? Or are they going to become victims to this? Are they going to become quality people? And are they going to become more steadfast within me? Or are they going to start slowly drifting? Drifting is rampant in the church, in the culture, people. We're tested on so many fronts, and it's so easy to just kind of like, well, well, you know, I went there, and, and they didn't respond to me the way I kind of wanted them to. And well, I just didn't feel accepted very well, or I just... It, no, God is looking in your heart. He's testing. He's using these situations to say, or what kind of person, what's going to come out of that heart of that person? That person, that situation is not the problem. The problem's in, in our hearts. And so God is constantly stepping back and he's looking. And here we see Boaz going, you know what? You're passing some tests you're taking risk. You're out there working hard. You're doing what you need to do. And you haven't become embittered. You haven't let Naomi's embitteredness become your embittered. That could have happened. Oops, excuse me. That could have happened right then and there. Right from the get-go, uh, Ruth could have bought into some of Naomi's fussing and moaning and, and her own bitterness. She could have done all of that. She didn't. She could have gotten scared. Apparently she had some looks because Boaz acknowledges, you know, I don't know. Was he a little older? Maybe not so handsome looking because he goes, you could have, you could have gone after some of these young Israelite studs who are up and coming and who are going to make a name for themselves. You didn't. 
you didn't fall for that. You didn't use your, you didn't use your body. You didn't use your looks. You weren't out manipulating things. You're a person of character. You're a person of integrity. And lastly, um, I want you to shift gears here just a little bit and picture King David, little David, as a teenager, out in the pasture land, right? He's out watching sheep. He's going to be the next king of Israel who's going to take Israel to heights spiritually, power-wise, never achieved before in the history of Israel. And here's this shepherd boy. And he's out on this land watching sheep. And David's out on this land learning how to get his slingshot skills going, right? David's out on this land taking care of the bears and the lions who want to steal sheep. David's out on this land singing songs, singing songs of praise. Go read the Psalms. I don't know where all that comes together at point. But David is learning and honing on this land that he's on, on this land that he's learning to become the next king so that when opportunity rises and this big giant comes into the land, David's ready to take on Goliath from what he's learned and been built up on in this land. You know where that land came from? That David was on. David's dad was Jesse, right? Jesse's dad was Obed. Who was Obed's son? Ruth and Boaz's son, right? You see, there was this whole destiny. There was this whole lineage. There was this whole behind-the-scenes thing that God had going on in God's mind. And he goes... That land that was in some other name, I'm going to redeem it because I need, my, I need King David to be learning on this land how to become the, the king of Israel. You see, when all this stuff's going on in our life and when all this, everything's going on, God's got this big picture going on, this big, this eternal value going on, this eternal destiny in the sense of who God is and him working with man and man working with God together in this relationship. And then we see this picture here in this little book of Ruth, four chapters long in the Old Testament, and how it had this reverberating impact throughout the centuries in the history of Israel. To this day, they honored King David. So when God's taken us through life and this stuff's coming up and we're tempted to want to go our own way and, and just let the life itself become way too much for us, understand that God is actively at work in us. And this week, and just in honor of this particular story, I encourage each of us, one thing we can do this week, one thing, is reach out to a family member and just in a special way bless them. A family member that you may not ordinarily reach out to them this way, 
send them a note, send them a text, give them a call and just say, hey, how can I pray for you today? When you normally wouldn't do that for that person. Okay. Just do that. Recognizing that we all are a part of this lineage and we're all a part of, of this future and that we can, even now, just out of honor for this, for this, the book of Ruth, let's reach out to a family member, maybe someone you haven't talked to in a little while, and just say, hey, how, can, how, how are you doing? How can I pray for you this week? Or send them a note, or do something this week, just out of honor for that. Lord, we just thank you for this message, for this story, back in a time where life was a little chaotic in the land of Israel, where things in the overall bigger picture were kind of in disarray and there seemed to be a lot of stumbling around in the civil leadership and in the moral leadership of the land. And yet in the middle of that, there's a very bright story. There's a godly story. There's a story of redemption. And this morning, Father, I pray that if in any way we have lost or sinned or through circumstances lost something, we just acknowledge you as our kinsman redeemer. You are the friend who sticks closer than a brother. And Lord, I just ask that you would redeem and take back what Satan is wanting to steal and take away from us. And that we would be people of character and trust and risk and commitment who say, yes, Lord. Um, I don't like my circumstances, but I'm going to trust you for my circumstances this week. So we ask this all in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be dismissed. Go in peace. Have a great week. Oops. Have an announcement here. Uh, it, uh, can you hear me? I was talking down here earlier. Okay. I have one announcement. On Monday evening, we're going to be trimming the bushes on the left side or around the church. If anybody wants to come and help us, it's Al, Kathy. I'll be here. Just bring clippers. So I guess um, Kathy doesn't like electric ones. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Other than that, you guys dismiss. Have a great, uh, great week.